Ubiquity, the history of designs we take for granted. Created by Chris Whitwood. On the morning of the 23rd of March, 2021, the ship Ever Given, carrying a cargo of over 18,000 containers, was sailing north through the Suez Canal en route to Rotterdam. The area had been hit by a sandstorm with winds exceeding 40 miles per hour. At 7.40 a.m., the winds caused the crew to lose the ability to steer the ship. The hull deviated from its course and she ran aground, blocking one of the busiest waterways in the world. It took six days for the Ever Given to be refloated. The obstruction held up almost $10 billion worth of trade each day. But the only reason such a vast amount of global trade became possible in the first place was thanks to the shipping container. Today, 95% of all manufactured goods moved around the world are transported by shipping container. However, their dominance has been a comparatively recent phenomenon. In his poem, Cargoes, John Macefield describes three very different vessels, from a quinquereme of Nineveh, to a stately Spanish galleon, to a dirty British coaster spanning centuries of trade. Yet the way that cargo was loaded had changed remarkably little. As recently as the 1950s, longshoremen, or dockers, were the backbone of ports around the world. When a merchant ship came into dock, it was the job of the longshoremen to unload and reload the vessel. Barrels, crates, sacks, and sometimes individual items were winched by crane or carried by barrow off the ship and stored in a dockside warehouse. Once empty, the vessel was manually reloaded. Dock workers stacked objects directly in the hold, using hooks to push or pull items into place and securing them with pieces of wood or rope known as dunnage. This system of transporting cargo as separate pieces is called brake bulk and is skilled but also highly dangerous work. In Marseille, France's largest port, 47 dock workers were killed on the job between 1947 and 1957. Because of the skill and time involved in loading and unloading such a jumble of goods, brake bulk cargo was expensive. The wood and rope for Dunwich alone could cost thousands of dollars. The seminal study into its inefficiencies came in 1954 with the US government analysis of the cargo ship SS Warrior. The report found that the cost of sailing accounted for less than 12% of the total cost of the voyage, whereas 40% of the cost came from cargo handling. A typical transatlantic ship such as the SS Warrior could take six days to load, 10 days to make the crossing, and a further four days to unload, meaning that cargo ships would often spend as much, if not more time, in port than at sea. The challenge was to find a way to avoid brake bulk altogether. Enter Malcolm McLean. McLean's background wasn't in shipping, but trucking. He had an eye for a good idea and a knack for playing the system. In a time when US regulation prevented a trucking company from owning a shipping line, McLean exploited a legal loophole and a $22 million bank loan to purchase two Second World War oil tankers. His initial idea had been to remove the need for brake bulking by driving his trucks directly onto the ship. However, it soon became apparent that such an idea was inefficient due to the space taken up by the truck itself. The solution was to create a box which could be transported by truck as far as the quayside, then just move the box. 
The idea of pre-boxing goods before shipping is not a new one. In 1766, the English engineer James Brindley designed a box boat to transport coal to Manchester by canal. Railways across the world used wood or iron boxes which could be loaded on and off wagons. However, previous attempts at containerisation tried to adapt the containers to the industry. Maclean sought to adapt the industry to the containers. On the 26th of April 1956, in front of a crowd of 100 invited dignitaries, the first of Maclean's ships, the SS Ideal X, converted to carry containers, left Port Newark, New Jersey for Houston, Texas. As the ship set sail, Freddie Fields, an official of the International Longshoremen's Association, aware that this innovation represented the writing on the wall for the longshoremen's profession, remarked in slightly more colourful language that he'd like to see the boat sink. Despite Fields' disdain, both the SSI DLX and McLean's idea remained very much afloat. When dock workers went on strike, McLean used the opportunity to convert ports for container shipping. The economic argument in favour of containerisation was undeniable. Using containers reduced the cost of shipping one tonne of goods 36-fold, from $5.86 to only 16 cents. When the US military needed to solve the problem of shipping equipment to Vietnam, the container ship provided the solution, and the military support provided the perfect opportunity to encourage adoption. By the end of the 1960s, after a decade of negotiation, standardisation, the most fundamental piece of the logistical puzzle, had been agreed. Had different companies and different ports developed incompatible designs, the whole system would have become as inefficient as the break bulk approach that preceded it. International container standards guaranteed that containers could be loaded, transported and unloaded the world over. The design of the modern shipping container is relatively straightforward. It is, after all, basically a big metal box. Nevertheless, there are some details worth noting. Often constructed of weathering steel, standard containers are 8 foot wide by 8 foot 6 inches high and either 20 or 40 feet in length. Side rails at the edges create a frame to which corrugated side panels are welded. This corrugation reduces required materials by adding strength. If you hold a flat piece of paper by its end, it will flop down. To strengthen it, you could thicken the paper or add supporting braces, but this would add weight and cost. However, if you fold the same piece of paper back and forth as though creating a fan, the zigzag folds create virtual depth without needing to thicken the sheet itself. In the same way, the corrugation increases the tensile strength of the steel. At each corner is a hollow cube with a rounded rectangle cut in the three outer sides. These corner castings are used to insert double-ended twist locks. These locks can be described as being like a double-headed arrow. The head of the arrow can slot through the rounded rectangular hole in a corner casting in one direction, but when locked, the arrowheads are turned through 90 degrees, so they cannot be removed. Using locks at each corner, Shipping containers can be lifted by cranes, or fastened to one another and further secured with steel rods lashing them to the ship. Digitally tracked containers in a computer choreographed ballet allows ships to be unloaded and reloaded simultaneously. Ships such as the Ever Given, carrying cargo orders of magnitude larger than the SS Warriors, only need to spend days in port rather than weeks or months. The cost implications of this increase in capacity and decrease in handling time are so significant that many economists simply round transport costs.
down to zero. By the end of the 20th century, the image conjured by John Macefield of dirty British coasters with salt cake smokestacks butting through the channel in the mad March days was consigned to the past. With it went a centuries-old way of life. Previously thriving dockyards face economic hardship, but for the rest of us, the birth of a truly global economy meant access to a variety of goods that could only have been dreamt of half a century before. Sometimes for a product to become ubiquitous, it takes more than a good design. Maclean and others like him reimagined how cargo shipping could work and were prepared to face down critics, competitors and bureaucracy to make it happen. To succeed, the shipping container needed coordination, investment and above all, standardisation. Get all those things right and a simple box can, quite literally, change the world. Thank you for listening to Ubiquity, the history of designs we take for granted. Please like and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. You can also follow the series on social media using the handle ubiquity underscore pod on Twitter and Instagram, or search Ubiquity Podcast on Facebook. All episodes will be available on YouTube. Please leave a like and a comment, as I'd love to hear your feedback and your ideas for future episodes. If you want to support the podcast financially, or just say thank you, please visit the Ubiquity Podcast Patreon at patreon.com forward slash ubiquity underscore pod. Patrons will also gain access to all of the scripts as episodes are released, and will be able to vote on subjects for episodes in upcoming series. I hope you enjoyed this episode, and thank you once again for listening.